Hi, I'm Doug Keck, and welcome to EWTN's Bookmark, a special one coming to us from the UK, London. Two authors, Katie Turley and Fiorella Di Maria. This Thing of Darkness, published by our friends at Ignatius, and uh, of course available through the EWTN Religious Catalog, EWTNRC.com, all things Catholic. Welcome, KV Turley and Fiorella Di Maria from London. Thank you, Doug. Well, great to be with you. And it's great to have you because uh, both of you connected in many ways to our UK outreach in, in, uh, for EWTN. Kevin, you're the, uh, what, the UK correspondent for uh, the Register on a regular basis, along with being a writer yes. and a host of uh, some programs, Turley Talks. Uh, featured on UK and also featured now uh, elsewhere on the network. And Fiorella, we talked uh, at least about one of your books in the past, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, I think it was The Abolition of Woman. Right, exactly. But, you, but you've actually written a lot of books that are more of a novel style, which is, I'll use that in the sense mm -hmm. of not being unique, but in the sense of being fiction. And that's unusual for this show. We usually focus on nonfiction, but the, but since uh, we had a connection and because it's an interesting approach to talking about the faith, I thought it'd be wonderful to feature both of you uh, on the program and also talk a little bit about some of the other work that you have going on uh, in relation to the church and in the UK. But let's talk about this thing of darkness. What's kind of interesting about it is uh, you tie in the faith, but you tie in a very famous old-time horror film actor, Bela Lugosi, who died back in, was it 56 or so? Uh, people know him as the, the original Dracula, uh, basically. Well, how did you end up concocting a story, and whose idea was it, to create a story that featured Bela Lugosi? Uh, Kevin, I think this is one for you, isn't it? <laughs> um, there's two starts to this, Doug. Uh, the first one was in July 1977. As a very young boy, I was, it was a Saturday night, it was the summertime, and in the summertime in the UK, the BBC used to run um, double bill horror movies late at night, you know, and it was universal horror movies, there was nothing very horrible about them really, they were just, and um, I'd never seen really any of these, and my father allowed me to sit up to watch the first one, and the first one was Dracula starring Bela Lugosi, mm -hmm. and I was just absolutely entranced by this kind of world, and this actor who seems so graceful and yet so menacing and had such presence on screen. Uh, and then fast forward uh, many years later, I was working in the film industry, and I was having a chat with a producer, and it was just over a coffee, we're chatting, and he said, you know, the life of Bela Lugosi would make a great film. Mm -hmm. And I said, really? And I started, and the next day he brought me a biography and I started reading it. And I was, but what I was reading, Doug, was something which I thought was a kind of parable mm -hmm. because Lugosi had this great success, uh, but it was very uh, transitory. Mm -hmm. And he had many, many years of uh, the downward spiral. You know, the, the old saying, nothing, uh, recedes quite like success could have been written on his tombstone and um, by the end he was a very sad figure but the other thing which which people forget is Bela Lugosi was a Catholic right. uh, and uh, was buried according to the, the rites of the church though uh, even he though was, he was dressed as Dracula right he was married five times too I mean that was, he was you know, and I'm not not putting him right. forward for right. for canonization right, this, right. This we want to be clear anyway, about but, that uh, right absolutely absolutely but but he still I mean, we are all linked. I mean, I, I, at the end of this writing mm -hmm. cycle, I contacted a monastery in England to have a requiem mass said for his soul oh, wow. because I thought, you know, that that's something at least we can do. So, 
making it absolutely clear, this is not a biography of Bela Lugosi. It's not right. a memoir of Hollywood in the 1950s. It's a fictionalized, uh, it's a work of fiction of two imaginations. Mm -hmm. And Bela Lugosi is a character within that. And I don't want to spoil any of the plot or anything, but he's a character in it. Maybe he isn't the character in it. Who knows? You have to read it to find out. Now, in this, uh, Fiorella, it says the story, as you were just saying, KV, is obviously a work of imagination about a famous actor who created an aura of mystery around himself, as was fitting for the kinds of characters he brought to life on the stage and screen. And you talk about the fact of the Catholic burial and uh, the Catholic, uh, the idea that he was buried in a Catholic cemetery, a Count Dracula costume. So when you first got together, the two of you, maybe Fiorella, you could describe how you came together to start writing this and how you wrote it as a team, I mean, did you write different sections? Did you collaborate all together on a regular basis? I mean, did you do this through email? How did, how did the process work? Uh, well, Kevin, as you've probably gathered, came to me with the idea. I had mm. never heard of Bella Lugosi, which yeah. is why the heroine Evie's first question is Bella who? Mm -hmm. uh, because that was, in fact, what I said, Bella Who. Um, and I didn't, I'd never seen Dracula, never come across the idea. Um, we spent hours discussing over the phone and in person the way the story was going to go. I created the sceptical English characters. Bella Lugosi and his development was very much Kevin's side. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and, and we really worked on drafts. You know, Kevin would write a draft, I'd write a draft. You, you can't really sit together you know, writing simultaneously. It's, it's right. a layer by layer creative process. Okay, so is so Evangeline Kilhooley uh, is the is the woman who is, has to do the interview with uh, Lugosi, right? Mm -hmm. Is kind of stuck to do it and threatened if she doesn't do it, she's out of a job. And uh, and Mr. Goldberg recommends a Hugo Riddell or Riddelli. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. So were, were these yeah. were these characters based on each of you? <laughs> uh, but that would be telling. <laughs> I think in America you say you take the fifth on that one. Okay. <laughs> but there had to be really, there had to be two sceptical characters though, um, to to let the to lead the reader in, and also so that I could cope with it because it's it's a crazy world, you know. Right. Well, it's interesting too because uh, some of the commentary uh, on the book from Joe Pierce talks about the twilight zone between hell and Hollywood, and I was wondering when I read that, is there a difference between hell and Hollywood these days? Uh, <laughs> good question. Probably not. Um, but, what, what, but what there is in the, in, the, in the public imagination, as you know, Doug, is that there's this idea that Hollywood is this great source of glamour and great source of fulfillment. And it's like the Hollywood sign. There's nothing behind it, you know. Right. It's, 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 it's a facade. And anybody who's worked in the film industry knows that. So. Um, uh, I, I think that's the sort of thing we were playing with, one of the ideas we were playing with uh, through the life of Laguzzi. He's a cipher for a lot of those themes and ideas. Right. One of the things that struck me in, in the beginning of the book, it starts in 1971, then it goes back to 56, of course, because of when Lugosi actually was still alive and then subsequently died of a heart attack in bed, as I believe. But with the idea, of why did it start in 1971 and go back to 56? What was special about that year? Anything? Well, it was more the importance in the life of the heroine, that she's at a very different place in her life when she writes, starts to write the I story. Mm -hmm. um, and we have to understand that it is a story told through her eyes. And you have to, you have to decide whether she's telling the truth or not. 
Right. And there's, there's one other aspect to it, which you probably know, that the great horror um, genre films of the 1930s, the next great revival came in England in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. And by 1971, it's like a hammer. You talk about like the hammer. Exactly, films? hammer, the hammer films, amicus, right. that sort right, of thing. Right, right. But by, by, by 1971, they had taken a decidedly darker turn. So um, there, there is a possibility. She, she's worried that maybe something new is about to reemerge. Okay, I see. And that's where the darkness comes in because we're not just talking about film darkness, we're talking about real darkness here, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, it's interesting, too, because you mentioned, and obviously, uh, Lugosi was a drinker. He also was a morphine addict later uh, because he, he was taking it for, he had a bad back, I think, at, at one point in time. Uh, but it's interesting, because this part I didn't know, but because I, I was just reading up a little bit on his life, and I thought this was an unusual connection. It said, a number of factors began to work against Lugosi's career in the mid-1930s, Universal changed management in 36, and because of a British ban on horror films, dropped him from their production schedule. And that's when he went from being an A actor to a B actor. So it's partially the UK's fault. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. quite possibly. <laughs> <laughs> I had never it always seen, is, really. I, I was not aware of that at all. So that was kind of interesting. Well, I think, I mean, it's, it's partly that, but I think um, you know that, uh, genre, especially in Hollywood or in classic Hollywood, genres came and went quite quickly. And actors also were flavor of the month. It was more film mm -hmm. production. And um, the thing about Lugosi was that, I mean, he had been a serious actor in his home, Hungary. And when he came to New York, he was on the Hungarian stage and he was doing Shakespeare. And he thought of himself as very much a, a classical actor. Right. And, uh, and then he ended up a bit like Boris Karloff, who was English. Right. You know, he ended right. up sort of stuck in this genre, which the, the numbers of productions increased where the quality of production seemed right. to decrease. Absolutely, in, so. in the 40s, I think the last quote-unquote A film is considered, believe it or not, Abbott and Costello Frankenstein in 48. And, and he also ran into, as you indicated with Karloff, he kind of became always the second banana behind Karloff. So if there yeah. was going to be one, he would always be the second Karloff would get top billing. Yeah. The other thing about Karloff was that Karloff managed to appear in non-horror genre films. He managed to create a, a much more diverse uh, film persona. Right. And Lugosi, for whatever reason, was stuck with essentially a one-note performance, which must, as an actor, must right. have been very, very frustrating. But it's interesting you mention uh, Abed and Costello. You know, Bela Lugosi only appeared twice in feature films as Dracula, mm -hmm. in the original Dracula and in the Abbott and Costello. Right. All the other times he was count this and count that. I mean, it was always Dracula, right, but it was never right. called Dracula. Right. He even played Igor in, in one particular production. Yeah. He, he played uh, various character roles and was, like I said, a great actor who was... Uh... So let's talk about, you know, so you get involved with this story and, 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 the, and the interviewer goes, Evangeline goes and interviews him. So give us at least uh, the idea of the, how does the story unfold from there and where does it take us? Well, you see the, the lives of the different characters becoming more and more intertwined. She's interviewing Lugosi, or she thinks is Bella Lugosi. She then becomes involved with Hugo Radel, who's the voice of reason all the way through. He's a film expert. He runs a film emporium. You also realise that he has a connection with her dead husband. And all the way through the book, you have this clash going on between... Hollywood horror and the real horror of the Korean War and everything that's going on in the world. 
So that was the soldier, her husband had been a soldier, was killed in Korea then? Yes. Uh, I see. Uh, also, uh, you say that uh, Michael O'Brien said, who obviously writes a lot of great uh, Christian fiction, this novel is a death blend of fantasy and chilling realities. How did you manage, uh, KV, to balance between those two? Um, well, I think, um, I mean, in some ways it was very easy because Fiorella is a very natural uh, novelist, uh, fiction writer. Mm -hmm. I enjoy fiction, but my, my true love is probably fact, you know, and uh, nonfiction as a genre. And I think if you, if you think of a hybrid, a kind of alternative fiction, mm -hmm. uh, which is reality slightly twisted, um, and, and that slight twisting, which you often get in science fiction, for example, mm -hmm. is a way in which you can then feed ideas into that. You know, that, that maybe there was different reasons for why things happened in the way they happened or, or why certain movements were taking place in society, that sort of thing. Right. And obviously we're coming at it from a very Catholic, a very Christian perspective. And anybody who looks at the history of cinema has to, has to question certain movements, certain forces, shall we say, that move cinema in certain directions at certain times right. for certain reasons. Right, and I think we can see that uh, constantly today. Let me ask you, Fiorella, when, when, you're, when you're trying to bring this story to fruition, one of the things KV mentioned I thought was interesting, he used the science fiction, but I guess in a sense the horror thing as well, the idea that sometimes you can introduce different concepts and unusual ways of reaching people who normally wouldn't be reached, who might pick up this book, right, uh, because they're interested in Bela Lugosi or because it looks like it's a little bit of a horror story, who wouldn't pick up some book just talking about the teachings of the Catholic Church, right? Yeah. I think the novel form is so important in terms of recasting the narrative and just reaching people, as you say, who would not normally be engaged. And someone was saying recently that the only time you ever see a Catholic priest portrayed positively these days is in horror. Mm -hmm. And the only time you ever see positive father figures mm -hmm. today is in, in horror stories. Mm -hmm. So I think certainly it, it just opens a lot of doors in terms of being able to talk about concepts that would normally be a little bit off limits, certainly. Right, and it's interesting too because uh, you kind of allude to that, and uh, you know, KV as well. The idea that you know, if you watch the movies, and certainly if you watch a lot of television, uh, whether they be uh, UK TV or, or, or television in the United States, especially in a lot of mysteries, if there's a priest in there, somewhere along the line, he's going to turn out to be a bad guy. Yeah. Oh, I, 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 absolutely. Always, yes. But, but the other thing, uh, Doug, is that you, you talked about the Hammer horror films mm -hmm. of the 1950s and 60s. Um, a member of Spanish bishops said that he loved these horror films mm -hmm. because the cross always triumphs in the end. Right. And, you know, when I was growing up, uh, the cinema knew Hollywood was in its full pomp. Mm -hmm. It was an atheistic, secular view of society. And then these crazy films came along where the cross had power, where holy water had power, where the Eucharist had power. And you start to think, wow, that's great. <laughs> you know, if that's all we're going to get, mm -hmm. let's take it, you know. Right. Uh, I'm not putting it forward as, as a form right. of catechesis. But, you know, in the world we're in today, you take what you get where you, where, you, where you can get it. And also, I think you're touching on something which is very close to my mm -hmm. heart, which is that the horror genre, science fiction, crime, we Catholics, we should be as engaged in those genres as anybody else, because we have a philosophy and we have a view of the world, and I think we have actually truth as well, which is right. something totally different for a lot of these. Well, of course, you had Chesterton and the Father Brown and the original one that was done years ago, and the new one that's actually 
still on TV at this point in time, which uh, you know I, I think is a decent production and, and overall okay. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the morality and it's a little squishy, but uh, considering where it's coming from, it's it's not too bad. But that that moves to something else. Fiorella, you've written uh, multiple books. We did the one on abortion, but you've written a lot of. Uh, of uh, historical fiction, Father Gabriel. That's your character then that you've written? Yes. Them? Okay. Tell us a little bit about Father Gabriel. Well, you see, I think people love crime. It's one of the most popular genres. There are hundreds of fictional detectives and there's no sign of the market being full of, uh, as yet. And it's, it's a similar thing. We're interested in drama like that because we're interested in the truth. And the wonderful thing about crime fiction is you have this search for the truth, you have attempts to conceal it, but eventually truth wins out and so does justice and the, the natural order is with, restored. So in fact, it's a very Catholic genre. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, f for you, Kevin, in, in, in coming to this, coming out of a, a world of film, uh, you know, television, also obviously doing news uh, as a correspondent, how do you did you what did you bring of that writing style to adapting that into this fictional tale? Um, it, it was more like it was a bit of a holiday, Doug. Do you know what I mean? Okay. I, I didn't I, I didn't have to check my sources though. Well, all the facts are correct, but I, mm -hmm. but it was it, it but it was also um, if you can imagine writing a, a news item, mm -hmm. but you're allowed to put the the sort of facts in a different order or something. Mm -hmm. You know, so so we have a template of Lugosi's life, but it's we play with that. We also play with certain facts mm -hmm. about uh, history, the history of Hollywood, mm -hmm. and and maybe what the motivation is behind it. What really fascinates me, whether it's nonfiction or fiction, is the motivation behind certain things, mm -hmm. why certain things are happening, why people are acting in certain ways. And as Catholics, I think that's that's a choice for light or a choice for darkness right, right. almost every day. So it's that kind of thing. So there's. It's, it's a similar style, but it's just obviously right. it's a lot more freer with the imagination. I will say this, uh, I think writing fiction is a lot harder. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad you said that because you said it was a holiday. <laughs> it was, <laughs> well, it was holiday. nice, it was fun, but it's harder. It's definitely harder. That's right. Okay. It, it's all interesting. All the research, though. Right, right, exactly. And what's interesting, too, uh, I was thinking of that uh, when Kevin was talking to Fiorello, the idea that uh, in a world today, uh, we don't want to know what's behind people and their thinking and, and their thought process and their history. We just take them, whatever they're saying, and if we don't like it, we attack them. We don't try to understand where, where that person necessarily is historically or contextually coming from. Yes, I think that is very true. But I think it is also the case that we're quite obsessed with psychology on its own. Right, in okay. writing and, and someone, someone, someone made the point that, and I think this is very important in terms of Catholic writing, that modern novels in fact speak a lot about the mind. They say nothing about the soul. Mm -hmm. The complexities of the soul, um, the spiritual journey, that is completely erased from modern writing. Mm -hmm. And that's where Catholic writers can really step in. They can right. explore those issues that no one else wants to touch. Right. So let me ask you, Kevin, uh, Fiorella indicated you came to her with at least the basic idea of the project. So did you already have the storyline and the arc of the story all laid out by the time you came and you were looking for her, her to help you flesh it out? Or what state was it in when you brought it to her? 
Well, I, I'd done the research on Laguzzi's life and that sort of thing, and I, I didn't really have an. I had an arc of obviously his life was already sort of there, to, to, and, and but then uh, it was really with Fiorella we worked out a, 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 a plot uh, line, and um, Fiorella introduced these characters and and the whole thing. I mean, what's what's very satisfying for me, uh, mm -hmm. Doug, when I had to read it back for the edits and that. Although there's bits I can see are clearly me, and maybe bits that are clearly Fiorella, the whole thing is is a work of two imaginations, mm -hmm. you know. And I'd be hard pressed to say, well, that was really me, or that was. I, I think it's just the two minds came together, and the thing, mm -hmm. as you know, these things get more and more sort of composite as as you go along, and and they ended up. I mean, it, it is the work of two authors. Right. So let me ask you, Fiorella, from from the time uh, KV brought this to you to it being published by Ignatius, how long of a process was that? Uh, was that two years? I think it was three. Three years, yes. Um, most of that was in the waiting and negotiating and you know, all, the, all the endless little changes you have to make. You know. Right. But negotiating, when you're saying negotiating, was that a, your business arrangement or negotiating how the story was going to work oh, no. or what? No. No, no, no. No problems with the business side. No. But we, we, had to, we had to iron out a few creative yeah, issues. Yeah, there was a few issues. Okay. It's a horror book. That's right. <laughs> It's a little bit outside. I mean, I think Mark Bromley is, has openly said it's a little bit outside the comfort zone, which is, you know, right, so no. we expected a little bit of. I understand, and, and I'm sure we'll hear from some people, too, who might have concerns if they pick it up. But people need to go yeah. into it understanding what, what, what they're reading. And as Catholics, yeah. our, our, our job is to engage, as you were both saying, engage the culture. Uh, and not uh, hide or run away from it. Uh, the other thing uh, with a storyline like this, I mean, it took you two or three years. Uh, are you thinking there's a sequel? Do you already have what the next phase of this might be? Or is, was this kind of one and done? Uh, well, we've left it open. Mm -hmm. The plot leaves it open for a possible sequel. Mm -hmm. um, just have to see how the first book does, I think. So uh, does that? What, what's your thoughts on that, Kevin? You're so just smiling. Uh, well, no, I think I'm, I'm very happy working with Frella, and I think there is a sequel. But um, we probably need to see whether whether there's an audience for this. Right. Um, that, that's that's the thing. I mean, there's definitely a sequel. I mean, there's always right. a sequel. I mean, right. and you know, in Hollywood, there's always a sequel if there's money around. So that's uh, right. Uh, in fact, one of the reasons why we get sequels all the time is because they think there's a built-in audience. But l yeah. let's let's talk about audiences. Turley talks. Uh, what's what's a turley talk? Um, was listening to me or me listening <laughs> to somebody somewhere across Great Britain. That's that's what a turley talk is. Um, uh, you know the team behind it, Norman Survey and Amy Buchanan and uh, myself, and uh, we have a number of people that we we've traveled around different parts of Great Britain interviewing. Mm -hmm. The high and the even higher, and um, you know it's been it's been great because uh, it's often. I mean, what we're looking for is people right. that are interesting, right, and that are Catholic. Right, exactly. You've got that great facility up in Walsingham, uh, which you yeah. guys have really done a great job of uh, creating a lot of uh, Catholic material out of there, which uh, we're we're pleased now to showcase even broadly, more broadly internationally. Now, as far as you, Fiorella, uh, what are you, what's your latest project? What are you working on? I mean, you have so many other things you're doing. You're a bioethicist, et cetera. You show up on television for those things as well. Are you working on another book? Yes, I have my fourth Father Gabriel mystery coming out in the spring, and I've also written a book for children about Maximilian Kolbe, mm -hmm. which I'm very excited about. 
So when you're writing a Father Gabriel book, how long does it take you to put that together? And who's your target audience well, for that? Well, the, the actual putting together of the puzzle mm -hmm. doesn't always take very long. Once an idea comes out, um, I have to plan it quite carefully. I don't usually plan a novel. I like to just enjoy the journey. But mm. with crime fiction, you have to have quite an intricate plan because you have to make sure the clues come out in the right time and things like that. The writing of it is reasonably quick. I can probably get a, a book written in under six months with the research, okay. uh, whereas a literary fiction book is much longer. Right. Well, let me ask you just one question. What time period is it set in? I haven't, I've never been, read one, so I was wondering what time period did you set it in? Is it modern time or the um, past? No, it's just after the war. It's about okay. 1947, that sort of time. So it's, it's just after the war, but it's harking back to the war. A lot of the mysteries are connected up with things that happened during the war. So. Okay. So, Kevin, as far as uh, Catholic news and your perspective on things going on in the church as you're writing there from London, uh, are, are good things ahead for us? we got tough times ahead. What's your perspective? And my perspective is that uh, whenever, whenever the darker it gets, I open the last page of the Bible, uh, Doug, which says uh, the second coming and hallelujah and amen. And I always say it's always going to work out, okay? Right. I don't know how, but it's in God's right. hands, and I know that he's going to sort it all out. I don't need to sort it out. What we need to do is uh, live our vocation here and now and uh, pray for those that maybe don't. Uh, and that's the EWTN mission, I think. It's, it's being true to who, what we're called to today, hoping to leaven the, the loaf uh, and, 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 and help make things better. We can, all, we can all make sterile lamentation, and a lot of news sometimes is just sterile lamentation. I think what EWTN and what the Register in particular does very well is that it says, okay, we know that, and here it is, yes, but look at this other side as well. Right. You know, ever ancient, ever new. Right. Absolutely. EW10 is reality television for what's really real and important in life. That's it. And, uh, you know, I always think of uh, Joseph's amazing technical, The Dreamcoat, where the song is, where we, we, we've read the book and we know you come out on top. So it kind of dovetails into <laughs> what you were saying. Thank you so much, KV Turley and Fiorella Di Maria. The book, the novel, This Thing of Darkness, published by Ignatius, available through the EWT Religious Catalog. Check it out. Something a little different. And this program has been a little different coming to us from London, and we thank you so much for joining us on this International Bookmark. Thanks.